So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm amazed at how desensitized I am to tragedy these days. When I finally got around to checking Facebook on Monday morning, and I saw post after post of shock and prayer and all that other stuff about the shooting in Las Vegas, I didn't, I didn't even run to turn on CNN. I, I thought to myself, oh no, I, re- I wonder what happened in Las Vegas. And then I went and got a cup of coffee and answered some emails, categorizing it as somewhat of an ordinary occurrence of violence and sadness within a news cycle, assuming one or two people were victims of a shooting on the strip somewhere. I confess, I have become accustomed to bad news. Until I finally did turn on CNN and soaked in the magnitude of it and the terror of the whole thing, and the news just kept getting worse and worse, one terrorizing realization after another, and then I immediately felt guilty for having become so accustomed to tragedy that I I could wait to know about it after my cup of coffee. I first learned about it on Facebook, as we first learn everything on Facebook, now, Facebook post after Facebook post of shock and sadness and prayers and outrage and disgust, except who are the majority of my friends? They're pastors. So my Facebook feed is this long list of pastoral responses. I can suddenly and tangibly feel the urgency within every pastor to make some kind of statement. I can hear the internal dialogue going, in all, going through all of these people's heads as they're trying to decide how will I respond for my people. Not how will I respond for myself, but how will I respond for my people. And so one pastor, I, I need my people to know I'm praying, I imagine is what's going on in his head. I need my people to know I care. And so, you know, he posts that we're praying. If if you need to know your people, you need your people to know that you care about this, you probably have a bigger problem at hand. Another pastor, I need, I need my people to know that I'm not going to make this political, right? I can smell the guilt from all the way over here in you. Another pastor, I'm going to, I'm going to quote the Psalms and the prophets. I'll let, I'll let scripture speak for itself. How long, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord, shall we go through this? I see you hiding behind your scripture so you don't have anything else to say. Another pastor, I need, I need my people to know that prayers alone are not sufficient. Prayers without action are pointless. And so I'll slip something in there about how we have to be people of action without actually saying what action I really want to take because I shouldn't be politicizing it which just comes across like you're more concerned about what your people are going to think of you than you are about the tragedy at hand. And then there are pastors who, in outrage, immediately go for the jugular. They skip over sympathy altogether and go straight toward what they deem to be that prophetic, that timely response. Another statement about gun control on day one. And I'm like, I get it. You're willing to do the hard thing, I see it. 
But even the prophet knew how to lament. And so after reading post after post, after trying to synthesize for myself what I was feeling and thinking, and of course I made my own posts, and in the wake of the worst that humanity has to offer, I thought, God, how do you respond? Seriously, God, how do you respond to this? God, what are you thinking and feeling? God, what would you say in 140 characters? Quite appropriately this week, in the grand story of salvation, we are trekking our way through the Bible in eight weeks, and we arrive to the prophets. And God certainly has something to say for the people of God and something absolutely to say in the wake of tragedy. But I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to tell you that part yet. Before we listen to the prophets, um, before we unpack what they have to say, let's first understand who the prophets are. Depending on which denomination you might have come out of, you might have been exposed to traditions of the church where people are in roles called prophet. That's not the kind of prophet we're talking about here. The problem for us is that we're not really sure if we should be taking prophets seriously or not. After all, we've, we've heard prophets, or we've heard about prophets. Other faiths have prophets. We don't know if we're supposed to subscribe to what comes out of their mouth. It's many times weird. They're dirty. They eat locusts. We know John. <laughs> Aren't prophets extremists? I mean, I've heard... I've heard folks tell me they're prophets, normally on a street corner somewhere, yelling about the damnation of humankind. Just to clarify, when we talk about prophets in the Christian church, we are not talking about psychics, we are not talking about extremists, we're not talking about those people in churches, in places that believe they've been given a vision by God to speak over these people We as Christians who come from Israel, who believe that prophets have a place in our faith, we do not believe in soothsayers. No matter how much we, they look to their tarot cards or their crystal balls, no matter how much they piece together scripture, taking this story and this story and this numerical instance and this numerical instance to piece together some kind of expectation of when Jesus is coming back in the future, we just don't believe that stuff. That's, that's not what we believe here. Prophets for us are not psychics, but what's confusing is that prophets do speak about the future, except the way they talk about it is something more like this. If you do not live into the vision that God has for you, here's the hell that awaits you. If you do not... Live into the vision that God has for you. Here's the hell that, that waits for you. But if you do live into the vision God has for you, then here's the heaven. Here's Zion. Here's this beautiful picture of what waits for you. You see the difference between what's going to happen on June 23rd, 2018, and what a prophet does? We don't believe in psychics. Prophets are among three categories of leaders within the Bible. So the first category of leaders are your rulers and judges, your kings, like Deborah, which we didn't get to talk about, but David, 
your rulers and judges. And these, the, the sheer job for them, the only job they have is to help people talk to one another. That's their job. So how do we live together? What rules will be in place so that we can live in a community? What happens if you break those rules as a community? They talk to other nations on behalf of the nation that they lead. That's what a ruler and a judge does, help people talk to people. The other type of leader that we see in scripture is a priest. A priest is someone who helps people talk to God. Priests help people pray. They stand on behalf of the people before God. They offer their words and their prayers and scripture. We watch them offer their sacrifices to help people talk to God. So kings help people talk to each other. Priests help people talk to God. And then prophets talk to people on behalf of God. And so that's why anytime a prophet speaks, you hear the words, thus says the Lord. Prophets have a word from God for God's people. A little bit more background, just so that you see where it falls in Scripture. Most of the prophets in our faith are in the Old Testament, except for one who's in the New Testament. Who is it? I said his name earlier. John. Fabulous. Um, That's the only time I'll quiz you today. So he arrives on the scene just before Jesus and says, Thus says the Lord, prepare the way of the Lord in Advent. In the season of Advent, we will hear him again in just a little bit. It's crazy that Advent's like a month and a half away. So John is the last of this type of prophet, and, but in the Old Testament, we have 15 or 16, depending on who you talk, about, talk to about this, other books of the Bible that are named for prophets. If you ever were in some Baptist church that taught you how to memorize the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, normally they got you to Lamentations, and then they totally just pooped out on you because nobody knows the order of the prophets. Nobody can remember that. I can, I can tell you, like, I could spout them all off to Lamentations, then I have zero idea after that. There are three major prophets. The three major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Why do they call them major prophets? They're, it's, not, um, it's not a military title. It's not because they're better. It's because they're longer. That's all. They're just very large texts. Um, then you have 12 other books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, sorry, Nahum, Nahum, people have said that different ways, um, Habakkuk, which they also say different ways, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all the ones we never read, right? Like maybe a little bit in Advent, a little bit in Advent. So prophets are people who speak a word from God to the people of God. I needed to get through the teaching so y'all can visualize where it falls in the Bible. As we trek our way through the Bible in eight weeks, I figured there is no better place for us to pitch our prophetic tent than in the prophet Isaiah, because it's the one that Jesus uses the most. So if we are trying to connect the entire scripture, Jesus' scriptural imagination, Jesus' salvation imagination is all based in Isaiah But here's the sticky part for Isaiah, and this is where the teaching comes in again. When we talk about Isaiah, we are not talking about one person. So if you noticed a shift in the tone of Isaiah from the first reading, where he's saying, I hate your sacrifices, to the second reading, comfort, comfort, oh my people, it's because they're not the same person. Isaiah did not write the whole thing. There are three Isaiahs. When you open up the book of Isaiah, you're in the 8th century, before Jesus. By the time you close the book, you are 300 years of history later. 
And it happens simultaneously to a lot of the other scriptures we have in Bible in the Bible of when the temple was built, when the temple is destroyed, and when they return back to the temple to figure out what does it look like to build it again. But before we dig into Isaiah, which I promise you it's going to get less teachy, before we dig into Isaiah, I need to set Isaiah within the story that we've been talking about up until now. Some of you have not been with us in this, this sermon series, and so I'll give you the really quick synopsis. In the beginning, God decides to create humanity and all the earth and gives humanity the one task, one single task. That task is to care for creation. That is our only task. Of course, we don't do it. In fact, we participate in breaking it, actually breaking it. And so Cain kills Abel, and wars happen, and God's creation becomes a mess. And so God renews the earth through water, and we begin this new line from Noah again, and God takes one person, one person from And from that one person says, guess what? We're going to restore the world again. You're going to go back to this caring for creation thing again. And in this, I'm going to make you fruitful and you are going to multiply throughout all the world and make it whole. That's your job is to care for creation and make it whole. And in that story of Abraham comes the story of Isaiah. Isaiah comes from these people called the people of God. And when we open up Isaiah's prophecy... It's the 8th century before Christ, and by that time, God's people have been ruled by not just King David, but a heck of a lot of horrible kings up till now. By the 8th century, God's people have built this little city, this beautiful little city that we call Jerusalem, or you might hear in Isaiah called Zion. This little city, this beautiful city, and in the center of this city is a temple, this beautiful little temple. The temple was beautiful, and it seemed like it was made just for them. It was perfect size, perfect dimensions. They spent forever in the Old Testament describing the building of this temple. You don't want to read that. And they began to think, and they began to act like it was made just for them, just for them, just for them. And so this idea of multiplying throughout the world to bring wholeness to all people, this little temple was now just for them. They forgot what they were here to do, to heal the world. In fact, they forgot about the world altogether. They just started to circle their wagons around this little temple, make it all about them and not about anyone else. Before long, the wagon circle just started getting closer and closer and closer. And you hear Isaiah say, you don't even take care of the widows and orphans in your own temple. They would just keep gathering closer and closer together, building higher and higher walls, separating themselves from the rest of the world. And the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 1 stands up in the midst of the temple and says, Enough! Thus says the Lord, I can't stand your solemn assemblies with iniquities. You are worshiping me while you're forgetting why you were created in the first place. Enough! This first prophet, we call the, the Isaiah 1 or Isaiah of Jerusalem, his message is simply this. For God's sake, people, Remember who you are. Remember who you are. But they don't. We never do. When we're comfortable and tuned into ourselves only, we never do. And before long, a foreign nation 
comes in. They're called Babylon. They are amazing at warfare and destruction. And about 587, they knock down that beautiful little temple. Because they had no eyes on the world around them, they were unprepared. And God's people are out of the promised land in in exile now. And from that point on, God's people spend their time separated from loved ones, building someone else's kingdom, in slavery, someone else's power, raising someone else's children. And then Isaiah 2, second Isaiah, stands up. They call him the Isaiah of the exile. And when he stands up in the midst of God's people, he says, Comfort, comfort, O my people says your God. I have not forgotten you, beloved, nor have I given up on you. There's a whole different God speaking here. I will redeem you. If you wait on me, I will give you strength. This is second Isaiah's prophecy, and his word for them is primarily this. For God's sake, remember who God is in your distress. God is the one who formed you from the dust of the earth. God is the one who brings life out of death. God is the one who can lead you out of exile. God is the one of grace and mercy who will not give up on you. Remember, for your sake, who God is. So Isaiah 1 says, remember who you are. Isaiah 2, remember who God is. After a while, Babylon falls like all nations like that do. (laughs) And once they're removed, God's people begin to move back into the promised land. They find their way back to this beautiful city, except this time the city is not so beautiful anymore. It's completely destroyed. And they stand there looking out on this, I mean, this completely destroyed city, and they wonder what's now, what's next? And that's when the third Isaiah stands up and gives them a vision of what the future might look like for them. And this is where the prophet starts to sound a little bit like the soothsayer, but it's not. He says, I see as clear as day all the nations streaming into Zion until all the world is God's beloved city again. I see all the peoples there, the people you want to... The people you want to be there and the people you don't really want to be there. 58 and 59. I see all the peoples there restored, healed, whole. It's like he says, in the name of everything sacred under heaven and earth, remember whose the world is. And then there the prophecy ends. Isaiah 1 In your comfortable, self-centered promised land, the prophet says, remember who you are. Don't forget who you are, who you were called to be. In bondage and exile and injustice and the worst humanity has to offer, the prophet says, remember who God is. And standing at the feet of destruction, wondering what's next, will there ever be hope? The prophet says, remember whose the world is. And so I looked up to God and said, God, what would you say in 140 characters? What would you say in the midst of this crap? And I look at humanity and I go, we've been comfortable. We've been self-centered. 
Congress can't get a thing done. We, we have our issues. And so, yes, good and right, it is good to say, I am tired of all your false promises. I'm tired of the things you say you'll do with your mouth, but you don't do. Absolutely, Isaiah would say that's right and good and a perfect thing to say in this time. But Isaiah too would stand up and say, comfort, comfort, oh my people. Not the time for that. We'll talk about that. In the midst of injustice, in the midst of the worst humanity has to offer, I'm here for you. I see you. Remember who I am. But then as we stand and we look at it and we go, is there going to be anything more than this? If we turn the news back on next week, are we going to see another one? And what does it look like in the midst of a world where, where this stuff just keeps happening? God, when is your kingdom going to come? And we stand on the edge of this broken humanity. And God says, remember whose the world is. This is pre-Jesus. This is pre-redemption at this moment. This is pre-the church. This is pre-recreation. And this is where we're going from here in this series. But right now, God says, remember who you are. Remember who I am. Remember whose the world is. But not just as we deal with tragedy, but I wonder, I wonder for you today, which of those words do you need to hear? Are you comfortable? Have you been trying to self-secure in your own life? Have, is church maybe one on a list of 10 things? Is maybe prayer one on the list of 25 things? And you're comfortable, and God says, uh-uh, remember who you are. Is that what you need to hear today? Do you feel convicted in your gut today? Because guess what? That's, that's part of what God does. God does not condemn, but God convicts. Or perhaps, perhaps you are in the midst of a horrible um, job situation or a horrible marriage situation. Maybe you are grieving a loved one. Maybe you know someone who is, is ill and you're having to walk with them through that. And maybe what you need to hear is who God is. Remember who God is. Remember who I am. Comfort, comfort, oh my people. And then maybe, maybe just maybe you are looking to start things new. I know we are still as a church on this verge of starting something new. And we've already done it. And yet it's constantly this new work of figuring out who we're going to be and where we're going forward. And we get lost in the vision and we get lost in the growth and we get lost in the next thing. And maybe the, maybe the word from God to us is... Remember whose church this is. Remember whose world this is. I wonder which one of those for you today is what you need to hear from God. And I invite you as we enter into a time of prayer to be, to be thinking about what your response might be in the wake of tragedy as well. All these pieces are a part of the puzzle. So we are going to pray now. For, um, if you look in your bulletin on the back, There's a prayer you can follow along with. And in the end, we will conclude with our curies, which is in English on here, so we won't actually say them in, in, in Latin. Um, 
our curiers at the end, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And we're going to say that, that through three times. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our minds strain to fathom the enormity of the worst mass shooting in American history. To our horror, it already was so ghastly, like this bloody high bar, and we, we confess that we, gosh, we're, we're desensitized to it so much the time. And yet a gunman peered down from a hotel room, aimed at fellow human beings, created in your image. Our spirits ache this morning, God, as we struggle to comprehend the breadth and depth of that pain. We realize the number of lives extinguished will increase as the river of afflicted flows into the sea of the slaughtered, and we grieve for the dead as well as for the pain of the injured We suffer alongside their friends and their family. We remember those taking care of them. But because their anguish bears a name and a face, and though we do not have those names and faces here today, we light candles for them in a holy place, in a holy space where their lives may be remembered. God, we stagger and we stumble when we realize this happened again, again, We plead on behalf of the injured. Please, we pray, deliver healing. Watch over them. Guide their caregivers. Bless and bind their wounds. And rain down the peace that only you provide. We plead on behalf of those whose loved ones are perished. May your your presence be as near to them as, as their next breaths, as tangible as the memory of the voices they will hear no more. In the face of such horror, God, we still believe in miracles. And we pray to you to make this stop. Let us live in a land where atrocity fades to memory, but never again rises to reality. We know that this is what your kingdom is. That's the kingdom of God. And we stand on that, that the brink of disaster and You speak into our lives. Remember whose the world is. Give us wisdom and trust to enact and enforce laws that protect people's freedom while restraining the capacity of this stuff to happen. Deliver us from a culture of extremism and exclusion that causes somebody to hate that much, that causes somebody to be so lonely, so depressed that leads them to that place. And grant us compassion and empathy and insight. Show us the plight and how unchristian it is when we call someone a monster. Lead us to greet them with love and kindness so that the power of your transforming grace is let loose into all lives everywhere. As we stand on the brink of Zion, we know that you are calling all people back to you, and that that means both the 58 and the 59th. Every way that in our, the depths of our soul we cannot accept that, every way that we would love to see people receive your vindication and your anger, God, forgive us. I pray now, these words in the gap, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy.
Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And we get, join together in that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.